I'm not sure my novel is dystopian anymore. Maybe speculative, maybe slightly futuristic. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices, and while they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Lori Lanson. Lori is the screenwriter of South of Wawa, Wolf Girl, and Marine Life. She's the author of five novels, Rush Road Home in 2002, The Girls in 2007, The Wife's Tale in 2012, The Mountain Story in 2015, and now her most recent book, This Little Light. As we do on Kobo in Conversation, I'll be asking her about the books that first influenced her as a reader, the ones that were formative as she began as a writer, and the ones that were around during the writing of her most recent book. Lori Lansons, welcome to Kobo. Thanks, Michael. I'm so happy to be here. This novel takes place over 48 hours in 2024. And we start with an explosion in a high school and then a whirlwind of fear and anxiety for Rory Miller, a 16-year-old California teenager. Who is she and why is she hiding in a garden shed? Well, Rory and her best friend, Fee, are together hiding in this garden shed. And the reason is that they have been accused of being behind the explosion you just mentioned, of bombing their Catholics or their Christian school during a purity ball. And this little light takes place against a, a backdrop of social media and likes and followers, and it's in a Kardashian's hometown, and there's religious fundamentalism yes. all around, and it's just a few years in the future. So draw the line from where we are now to the world that Rory lives in. You know, what are the changes that have happened in the world between now and then? Well, Rory is in real peril. And I think I took the seed of, of what I feel is peril for women now um, under this administration and with the many changes that we've seen and sort of launched it into the future, but, you know, on a straight ahead path, sort of not like Handmaid's Tale, which is, you know, a, a, a very sort of off and fantastical um, kind of dystopia. But in my story, it's just like, imagine that everything that's happening now gets a hell of a lot worse. And in my world, for example, and this is maybe the most important uh, part of it, abortion has uh, become criminalized. So this affects all women in all ways, and the, the fundamentalist um, right-wing Christians have so much power and influence that things like purity balls, which aren't really common now, are very common. And a, a rite of passage, the way a quinceañera is or, or the way a sweet 16 is. And I think that's an important point to draw on, that while the environment for women in this, in this novel has become significantly more restrictive, there are these rituals that have grown up around it, it's still also regular teen life at the same time. 
that's right. I mean, I think at one point Rory says that she she talks about the fact that, you know, and she's angry and and she's and she's just riled up and she has a lot of opinions and she talks about the fact that um she is at on the one hand going to school every day and talking about you know, care for other people and how much Jesus loved the poor. And then on the other hand, drooling over Prada handbags and other ridiculously expensive luxury items that she happens to be in a world where those things are afforded. She calls it spiritual double dutch. (laughs) And I think that's it. When you're characterizing this novel, you've said that it's not a dystopian novel, as so many novels sort of featuring teen protagonists in the future are. Yeah, and as you know, as some people still describe it, I think when I sat down to write it, I definitely had the term dystopian fiction in the back of my mind, and I was very aware that I'd never written anything like this before. But I, I felt this necessity to. I don't know, write a, write a sort of a, a response to what was happening in the world and a sort of, you know, siren call. And um, I thought, okay, the following year, by the time I was sort of into a first draft, I, I was already thinking, but the world has changed so much already. Um, he made it into the White House. This is, you know, the, the guy that I was afraid would make it into the White House. And, and now everything seems surreal. And I'm not sure my novel is dystopian anymore. Maybe speculative, maybe slightly futuristic, but it's, yeah. <laughs> maybe one month in the future right. or two months in the future. And that's what happened as month after month, you know, came. And as I waited the the sort of year, you, you know, you, you have this first draft, your publisher accepts it, then you go through some editing, and then you wait a long time for the book to actually come out. And as I've been waiting for the book to come out, I've just been watching it all unfold in bizarre fashion, and wondering now, would we ever use the word dystopian now about this book? Were there any things where, as current events have unfolded, as you were writing, you were thinking, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. And then as the book is now out in the world, you're like, oh, I actually could have gone farther there. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely had periods when I was writing the book that I thought, even though this is a, you know, a universe into the future, and I am in charge of the rules and constraints, they still have to make some sense um, within the world. And there were a couple of times that I thought, am I going too far? I mean, this probably won't happen. So, and then, you know, again, there'd be a news report, or I'd see something about, for example, I was I was writing about the charismatic religious leader uh, in the book and wondering if I was going too far and if this would be believable that he has a a young girl recruiting other young girls for his cause. And, and then, you know, that case um, um, that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, Nexus, I believe it's called, hit the um, headlines and, oh, it's happening. Novels that are set in the future often have embedded within them a warning you know, the, of the, this is possible if we aren't careful. Yes. And so you, you know, you've mentioned women's place in society as being one of those things where as you, you know, put your finger on the fast forward button, here's where we could get to if we're not careful. Were there any other yes. themes that you were pulling on that you wanted to emphasize or highlight as you were throwing us five or six years into the future? 
Well, I think in addition to women's rights, there are immigrant rights that are um, talked about in the book. And, you know, this is a world where there are no longer dreamers, but prosits, probationary citizens. You know, there is a dearth of empathy for homeless people. There is, um, you know, all of those injustices, those social ills are sort of talked about in the book. And yes, of, of course, it's it's an observation as an adult for other adults. But, uh, you know, I feel like certainly people could share it with younger people and with teenagers even. But it's, it's a way to observe this is what we're doing to our girls with these mixed messages and with religion entering government policy and with discussions about God and how God feels about women. This is what we're doing to them. These are the confusing messages. And this is the end result. I think this will be the end result. Rory is a, a fascinating character. She has one foot in childhood, one in adulthood. And as someone who has a 16-year-old girl who I'm responsible for the care and feeding of, <laughs> yeah. so many things from her life resonated in the life that I'm seeing <laughs> in my home. In some ways, she's sophisticated. In others, she's just kind of lacking in background. She's, she's a contrarian. She's a skeptic. She's conscious of Me Too. She's conscious of its backlash. She's fluent in intersection feminism and race dynamics but as you say like you know she would love a Prada handbag <laughs> yeah. and she's you know really clear on the quality of someone's shoes you know, and, you know yes. and, so how was she assembled what did you pull her from I definitely was influenced by living with teenagers um, over the course of writing the book. And my house was always filled with teenagers. And of course, I listened in on their conversations. And I'm fascinated by the rhythm of their language when they're talking to each other instead of looking on their phones. You know, you find if you're really quiet, just like when kids are little, and if you're quiet in the car, they talk to each other and you hear things you've never heard before. And that can happen too when you have teenagers in your car. So I did absolutely sort of, you know, lend an ear and observe her cadence and the things the girls talked about. But I think as much as anything, I channeled my own 16-year-old self into this story about girls in peril and feeling injustice and wrongly accused and confused and outraged. So that's where she came from. Just going back to something you mentioned earlier, being able to hear those unguarded moments of language between teenagers is fascinating because, of course, they do speak differently to you and when you're <laughs> around than they speak yes. to each other. And it's, it, it's, it's surprisingly difficult to kind of catch them in the wild. Uh, so. Yes, and then translate what you're hearing because you're not sure what all of the words mean. That's right. So I did go to the Urban Dictionary a few times. And sometimes when I was writing the language, because I imagined it, you know, five years into the future, I really didn't want to use too many phrases or ideas that 
are sort of happening today. And I, I, I would check in with my daughter. And I remember at one point I said, you know, is this a thing? Could I use this? And she said, God, no, that was a thing already. And like, you can't use um, it if it was already a thing. It can't be you, a thing again in five years, Mom. Did you get the eye roll? I got the eye roll and the tongue cluck, which are really <laughs> bad. I mean, when you get those in tandem, yes. you know, it's bad. <laughs> what were those parts of your own 16-year-old self? that you put in there? What were the feelings or the thoughts that felt universal to you? Well, I think it's this ongoing question that we have about femininity and women's place in the world. And I was coming of age in the 70s. So I remember when there was a a home for unwanted mothers around the corner from our house, I went to Catholic school and I, you know, I was taught that abortion was murder and that people who had premarital sex were sinners. And so I had to fully, in my case, I just made a huge break with my faith and reinterpret everything that I saw happening around me with my own heart and my own intentions. So I, f- I felt rage. Even then, I was angry at religion for what I felt was misleading me and for what I saw now as misogyny. And I felt the injustice as, you know, women were talking about workforce equality and as women of different races and cultures were stepping up and saying, hey, you think it's bad for you? Imagine what it's like for us. And all of that plays into, of course, the person you become and the way you write. And so picking up on that and the things that formed you as a reader and as a writer, what were those books and influences that started you off? The first book that I would say was and probably still is one of the biggest influences on me as a human, me as, a, as an author, um, is the Bible, because I was raised Catholic. And that book, especially the Second Testament, is something that I, I believed and the tenets of which I loved and um, understood, and particularly, you know, the messages of Jesus and, and the parables. So the parables for me, these wonderful little short stories with wonderful lessons of love and redemption were stories that I enjoyed reading, but I also would start to write my own little short stories like that. I've been writing since I was in third grade when I was eight years old. Always writing short stories and poems and not showing people. And that was a huge influence, um, the Bible. And then after that, it was, you know, like most kids, I did the Nancy Drew and Little Women and Little Prince and The Secret Garden and the Narnia Chronicles. And my friends and I were big readers. Going back to the Bible for a moment, some other authors have spoken of how the language of the New Testament, especially King James New Testament, kind of embedded certain rhythms of speech and rhythms of storytelling in the work that they've done or gave them a certain love of cadence or richness of vocabulary. What is it that you pulled forward from that? That's really interesting. And maybe that's where my love of language was born as well. Reading those beautiful words, some of which I did not understand, were sort of inspirational and influencing. So you wrote your own parables. I wrote my I wrote my own parables. <laughs> they were about, Michael, they were about my friends. And it usually involved some injustice where I win in the end. So you were settling scores in parables. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, but not not unlike certain aspects of the Bible itself. You know, the, <laughs> Precisely. the, the writer exactly. gets to decide the winner. Um, <laughs> you began your career as a screenwriter. And so what was it that brought you to films first? Well, I began my success as a screenwriter, but I began my career. I started writing uh, short stories and plays and none of them very good. But I worked in that sort of area for many years before I wrote my first screenplay. And as much as anything, I think it was it, it was because I wanted to explore storytelling, the visual medium of storytelling. It was still storytelling and I was still writing and I wanted to put these pictures up and, and have that sort of communion with a with a, an audience watching moving images. So I wrote my first screenplay, South the Wawa, which is about a couple of girls trying to get to a Dan Hill concert and what happens because they don't, um, which I really meant to be Chekhovian. And whatever lack of success or success that movie saw, it really did cement my desire to sort of, as as a as a writer, as an author, as any kind of a writer, to really put my reader in the cockpit with me and sort of invite them to see what I see. Not just hear what I hear or think what I think, but also see what I see. And as someone who grew up in a household that had Dan Hill playing on a fairly regular basis, um, I, <laughs> you, I think you nailed Northern Ontario Chekhov. I think I think you hit that, <laughs> you hit that well. <laughs> as soon as I told somebody, I actually like I love that song. Sometimes when we touch, it makes me cry. You know, the the die was cast. So, did writing novels, writing books? sneak up alongside the screenplays and were you doing them in parallel or was there a point where you switched from one to the other? There was a point where my time in the film business was over and um, I had been, I'd wanted to direct this and, and I had written and wanted to direct this feature film, this independent feature film. I'd produced and directed several short films. And, you know, I, this was this was my great hope that I could make this film called Jesus Freaks. So you see how long I've been carrying these themes with me uh, about a, a charismatic kid uh, who becomes a false messiah. And over the course of several years, the financing came and went and fell out and there was hope and then it was hopeless and there, we, we used a lot of our own resources and there was a collapse in the financing for the third time. It just felt like it was, it was time to um, say goodbye. And my husband suggested, why don't you take a break, write, start writing that novel that you've wanted to write all these years about Southwestern Ontario and the history that you're, you know, so intrigued by. And so I did. I started writing the next day. And very quickly, I became pregnant with my first child. And so it was just a, just a sort of complete shift in my life. So as you were starting as a novelist, were there authors or books that you you gathered around you in terms of either being models or aspirations or just influences that helped you get that sense of the kinds of books that you wanted to write? 
Well, I think I gathered them around me metaphorically and that they're still gathered around me and, and will always be on my hard drive. But, you know, when I, when I think back, when I wanted to be a writer, when I knew, and it was sort of my secret that I wanted to be an author, um, and, and I think I was too embarrassed to, to tell people that or it, or it sounded like an arrogant aspiration. And at that time, I was reading, you know, I was in high school and I was reading Alice Monroe. And it was such a gift because I I loved her work so much. I, I read Lives of Girls and Women and then everything else she'd written to that date. And she was writing about the people from essentially my own hometown. She was writing about southwestern Ontario. And they were just simple stories about people's lives and yearnings and thoughts and feelings, but they were enormous in their sort of reach and scope and the way they touched me and spoke to me. And I not only sort of thanked her in my head for for saying, it's okay to write about southwestern Ontario people and, and you know, you, you don't have to write about, um, uh, write some epic or fantasy. This is what's on your mind, so you can write about it. And that she was a huge inspiration. And, and then, of course, there were the Margarets. There was Margaret Lawrence and Margaret Atwood, whose novels just, although they were different and and exotic and far-reaching they also just sort of inspired me and I I remember thinking I want to write books that will make readers feel the way I feel after I read these novels and you're the kind of writer who sets out at the beginning and says here's the beginning here's the middle here's what's here's what's going to happen at the end um you're a planner I am a planner, and I don't know that I was a planner quite like that, or if that was um, part of my discipline before I, I read The World According to Garp. And I remember so distinctly after, and I was, already, I was already writing at that point, but I remember distinctly getting to the end of it. And after, you know, a day of, of tears and sobbing, I remember thinking, ah, so John, you sat down, you knew the ending, before you wrote the first word, you must have. And, and, and so every, every day was in pursuit of that ending. And I realized when I sat down to Rush Home Road that I wanted to do the same thing. And, and I also realized that it was probably the only way I was going to get through it because it was going to take years. And I'd never worked on a project that long. And in order to sustain interest, let alone discipline, Knowing where I was going really meant everything, and it informed the way I think about my stories and the way I approach my work. And it also helps enormously with the discipline of sitting down because, you know, you know, you know that if you work really hard, even if you have to, like, drive to Cleveland and, and get a connecting flight and, um, and maybe take a bus, that you're going to get there, and you know where you're going. <laughs> and do you find that that gives you a certain amount of freedom? You know, knowing what the end destination is, you're more likely to take some of those detours along the way? I think that's 100% true. And, and in terms of working with themes that you then, you know, largely hide within your your characters, that thematically, when you know the end, you know essentially your purpose in writing the book at all. 
So it's it's just sort of for me, again, I, I know that all novelists don't approach their work this way. And I don't think that that has anything to do with the success of a book or or if it's a good novel. But just for me, that's my, you know, if, if there's a if there's a recipe I, <laughs> to complete a book without any more qualifications, I think that might be it. Rush Road Home was released in 2002 to great reviews. When it came out, were you thinking, okay, I'm a novelist now? I remember early on thinking I wasn't sure what to call myself um, because I used to say I was a, a writer. And then that begged the question, what kind of writer? Well, screenwriter. And have I ever seen, it, seen any of your work? Um, no. <laughs> And so, again, it was sort of like when I was young and afraid to tell anyone that I wanted to be an author, I guess I was maybe a little insecure at first. And I felt like I needed another book under my under my arm before I could fully say, that's my profession. I am a novelist. And in the four books since, The Girls, The Wife's Tale, The Mountain Story, and now This Little Light... Is there a through line or are there some themes and ideas that you just find you want to get back to and explore in multiple books? I think when I look back and that I can see that the the theme of all of the books is loss and redemption. And it's only now looking back that I can see it quite clearly. And I think that that is, once again, sort of harkens back to my early days and the, the things that I learned, some of which, and I hope the best of which, are still on my hard drive. To me, there also seemed to be this, this sort of underlying study of what are the conditions that force change or that spark evolution in a person? You know, how, do you, how do you put someone in a situation where they evolve? Right. And I, and I think in some ways, although it feels counterintuitive, that's exactly what's happening now. And, you know, even though it feels now so chaotic, I do have hope that through this chaos and through what amounts to a lot of tragedy for a lot of people, that we will find our way, a better way and a more human way to deal with each other, uh, a more um, sensitive and um, intelligent way to work out our differences and even discuss our differences. So, you know, again, loss and redemption, I just, I, I, and, and, and hope. You wrote an article a while back about the condition of authoritis, which is a condition <laughs> that you live with, chronic, hopefully not terminal. Yeah. Tell me, yeah. tell me a bit about that. Well, I mean, I remember, and I, I remember writing that article years ago, but I was complaining about my cramps in my hands from typing. And I, I have a little, I, you know, I mentioned that I, I had some arthritis and my daughter misunderstood and thought that I said authoritis, which is, you know, clearly a disease that authors have. And she, she sort of mentioned, is that why, you, you know, you stare off? And I, thought, oh, I do that, don't I? I do stare off. And I think I'm not alone in this. When you live so fully in your head as an author, these people that you invite inside and you get to know, they intrude a lot when you're trying to have your real life and they tap on your shoulder while you're making dinner and they say, you know, I don't like the way you handled that last chapter. And so that's, oh, that, I think that's probably... They're mouthy. <laughs> 
They're mousy, they're contrarian, they get in the way. That's the fun part of the middle piece of writing, because even though you know the, the, the beginning and you know the end, and you know the broad strokes that will take you there, the characters really dictate um, where they're going to go, and they evolve. And then things happen in the world, and, and you reconsider what, where you were going. Um, and, and that keeps it exciting and fun, too. Just looking at the timeline, it's four or five years between books. Do you find that it's getting easier over time? For me, it's not so much the writing that is difficult. It's, it's actually the time that to write that is the challenge for me, just because of my particular choices and circumstances. And I'm, you know, a, a mom and I live in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of driving and things, things take longer um, than they did when I wrote my first book. And my, my, my child, my first child was still in my womb for the entire time. And he really didn't bother me much at all <laughs> or interrupt much at all. Are there habits or rituals or environment that you need around you to do your best writing? Well, I have, a, I suppose, a quirk. Um, and, it, and it actually is because I was pregnant um, with my first child when I was writing Rush Home Road. And I realized at a certain point as I was sitting there with my abdomen growing and pushing my desk out far, uh, farther and farther every day and so uncomfortable that I was sitting there for eight to 10 hours a day, just sort of, you know, channeling this story that um, I already knew I'd already been thinking about for 15 years. So I just... There was never enough time. Um, I, I felt like I had to slow down the characters and just g give me a minute. I can't type that fast. And I realized that my child in utero was for hours every day because my husband was off working, hearing nothing but the tippity tip tip tap of my keyboard. And I thought, this is going to make him neurotic. This is terrible. I, I Not only am I not playing Mozart, I must be driving him crazy. So I started to write out loud. And I composed out loud. And I, of course, acted out the dialogue. And I still do today. I write out loud. Uh, it's a it's an odd little quirk, and it's part of the reason that I need you know obviously a private space and private room because I drive everyone crazy. And by the time the book is done, is your whole family familiar then with the voices that are in your book? Oh no, the opposite. I'm I'm very very closed about what I'm writing about. Um, only my daughter knew that I was writing the last, my daughter and son knew that I was writing the last novel. I, I just kept it quiet. Um, I don't like to talk about my writing day. I don't talk about my characters or themes or what I'm writing about. Um, it's just a, uh, maybe a little superstitious. So no, I have a private area to write. So I can't write when people are in the room. You know, uh, I can edit that way. So private and soundproof is important. Private, private and soundproof. Exactly. I asked you before this interview which books you were thinking about when writing This Little Light. And mm -hmm. they weren't the ones that I expected to hear at all. I had, you know, I had thought, oh, I would be hearing about Handmaid's Tale and The Farm. and But there right. was another book that kind of caught me by surprise when you told me, but right. in retrospect made perfect sense. Can you tell me about right. it? Right. Of course. Well, yes, and, and especially because The Handmaid's Tale keeps you know, because it's it's this brilliant, wonderful, compelling 
I'm so in um, series. It's it's everywhere. So I understand the comparison or, you know, how someone might bring that up because it does deal thematically with exactly the same issues. But the book that I really was inspired by, and Handmaid's Tale is one of them, but I started writing the book you know, before Handmaid's Tale became a series and and started to air. So the one I'd have to say, though, really sort of stuck in in my craw, as it were, um, was The Catcher in the Rye, which, of course, we all read when when we were teenagers. Um, And I remember thinking when I bought a copy for my son early on when he was a freshman, ha, I remember that book. I remember how that made me feel. And I read it again. And I so appreciated Holden's voice. And I felt, you know, his his outrage. And I understood his confusion. But what I really took away as an adult reader was, I'm now the jerk he's talking about. I'm the adult. <laughs> I'm the guy that, you know, the kids want to rage at because we made this world for them and it's confusing and it's and it spawns outrage. So that's the book. And I remember thinking, you know, later on when I was putting this story together in my head, how would it be? What would it look like? Well, you know, if Holden Caulfield were alive today, he would have blogged that. He would have blogged that story. He'd have a computer. He'd be a social influencer. He would he would want it to be immediate and and read immediately because that's how people are today, especially young people. So the catcher in the rye, and again the themes and the fact that it takes place over forty eight hours and the sort of immediacy of it all very much inspired this book. Have you started your next four to five year talk out loud journey already? <laughs> Well, it's interesting you ask, because after I finished This Little Light, I've sort of paused a little bit while percolating the next novel so that I can work with them on a couple of, ah, I'm back, television projects. And and one of the ones that I'm most excited about is um, a series that I'm working on with a great friend of mine who is a a chaplain in the, a woman's prison system here, and it's it's really the story about um, what happens to women after Orange is the New Black. It's set in a halfway house with women returning from um, being incarcerated, and what happens to them. So it you know it continues on that that theme of women's rights and social justice. Had you been doing any screenwriting since the since the books began in, um, in 2002? None, not at all. How I, does it feel to come back? No desire. I, I remember logging into the screenwriting program called Final Draft and just, I, I know that I used it for, you know, 10 to 15 years and I couldn't make it out. I had to have somebody come over and help me and it was all very frustrating, but as soon as I dove back in, it all felt very familiar because it's what I have been doing all along, which is paint the picture. Lori Lanson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Michael. I've so enjoyed our conversation. 
Lori Lanson's book, This Little Light, is published by Random House Canada and available at www.kobo.com, along with Lori's other books and some excellent audiobook editions as well. You can get links to the books mentioned in this episode and find previous episodes as well at www.kobo.com conversation. Be sure to give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast source so people can find out how great this is. And also check out our sibling podcast, Kobo Writing Life, all about the nuts and bolts of making it as an independent author. Talk to you soon.